there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Stephen Gerrard sort of had a pop at him in a press conference about, if you've got his phone number, are you, are you backing him? And I remember thinking, this is not going to end well for you. Yeah. In this episode of The Ripple Effect, we're going to take a look at how we got here and how the big moments have made this all possible. I remember driving home from QPR and hearing that and I was going, you're gone. I have this sort of perception of individuals, whether it's Lampard, whether it's Gerard, whether it's Vieira, where unless you buy in fully to what that fan base wants, there will always be this air of, you think you're too good for us. Let's go down this sort of egg, boiled egg analogy. I think he's a per- and he looks a bit like an egg. He's got the, he's the perfect, he's a perfect egg. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Ripple Effect with me, James Alcott. I am joined by a very special guest who uh, I didn't want. You know, Arsenal agenda. I didn't want Man United agenda for this one. I wanted someone with a bit more neutrality because we're going to be talking about the defining moments of the Premier League season. We're nearly there, guys. It's been a long one, but we're nearly there. And Daniel Cook, otherwise known as HLTCO, otherwise known as Hopkins looks to curl one in. Hopkins looking to curl oh, one, almost. Yeah. Uh, joins me. Uh, you are a Crystal Palace fan. For those who don't know, uh, you uh, most people will be aware of your work on Twitter. Um, but you've started a YouTube channel recently as well. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you have a patron uh, where you talk about Crystal Palace, but you talk about all sorts as well? Yes, just Crystal Palace? there's two podcasts every day, Monday to Friday, one on Palace, one on football generally. Oh, wow. So, well, there you go. So lots to uh, check out when it comes to uh, to Daniel. Best thing to search is what, Daniel? HLTCO. HLTCO. Okay. What we're going to do here is we're going to just... There's just a very, very long list of defining moments that we had a few, but then it felt like there should have been even more. Uh, and so we're just going to work our way through it, Daniel. And we're going to sort of like stop off when we want to. So it's going to be a bit like a bar crawl. <laughs> uh, if you are new to the podcast and you're enjoying yourselves, uh, then make sure you follow the podcast. We've had all sorts recently. Uh, we've spoken to fans from all of the relegation battling teams. Not Crystal Palace, of course, and that. Uh, we've had ones about sort of evergreen topics. We've had, a, I think it was nearly a two-hour one at the, uh, on Friday, talking about Man City and uh, Champions League semi-finals as well, uh, and so much more. So if you want to check out all of those, they're all nice and fresh and good. Um, but give us a follow and give us a five-star rating as well. And keep an eye on my Twitter, at James Alcott, because I often ask you guys for questions and ripple effects. Right, let's go, Daniel. Got a lot to get through. Okay, first of all, let's kick off with something uh, close to your heart. Liam says, uh, sacking Vieira fixed Eze and saved our season. Simple, effective. Uh, 
let's talk about Crystal Palace briefly because I mean it's worked out really nicely. Um, but the collateral damage was Vieira. So is Liam right? I think in terms of a defining moment for Crystal Palace this year, sacking Vieira, did that fix Eze and save his season? Absolutely. I, as much as that might sound reductive, I think you know there, there was a a pretty solid narrative in the media generally that it was an early call that we were wrong to do it that he still had because there was this whole thing where I think we'd had three month spell where we'd pretty much played the entire top half and then there was this easier run of games and the suggestion was that Vieira would have picked up the same number of points that Roy did but I think if you'd watched Palace I think we were the only team left in the whole of Europe's top divisions who have not won in 2023 by the time right, we yeah. went we weren't scoring goals we didn't look like we had any confidence going forward Eze was in and out of the team um, and you know obviously hindsight is in 2020 but just the whole feel of the football club has, has shifted and, and it definitely does feel as though Roy has brought back confidence, he's brought back a bit of freedom. Expect, I mean, Eze in particular has just been incredible since yeah. Roy returned. And people, I'm, I, from my perspective, I think people have this view of Vieira because he was an invincible, because he sort of embodies the Premier League and elite performances that, that he would have been perfect for Eze. But if you look at his arc since he moved from QPR, mm. the first year... He had Roy as manager. He was fantastic. Yep. And then I'm not suggesting he was poor in the first year under Vieira, but he certainly didn't hit the same heights. And then, you know, you've got... Coming Roy... back from an injury. Yeah, yeah of course. And I, I wouldn't want to necessarily suggest that Vieira didn't get anything like out what he should have got out of him. But if you look towards the performances since Hodgson came in, it's just incredible. You yeah. know, goals and assists. And he's just... Even the game last weekend at Fulham, you know, he skips past his man plays a lovely through ball to Edward and it's it's just like shelling peas for him. And, That's such an Eze sentence. Yeah. She skips past the man. It was incredible. Through ball. You know. Um, he's gorgeous. Like, I absolutely, you know how much I adore <laughs> Eze. Uh, we're going to talk about a bit more about uh, Roy Hodgson because uh, shout out to my mate, um, Mike Soper, who uh, I was um, chatting to yesterday as a Crystal Palace fan. And he was saying that as much as it was about sacking Vieira, it was about hiring Roy Hodgson. Mm -hmm. So that's one of your defining moments. Spoiler alert, we'll get to that. Uh, but we've got, got lots of uh, quickfire ripples that we need to get through. Uh, Nico says, uh, Man United, the one, <laughs> Palace again, the the one one away against Crystal Palace in which Elise equalised with a last minute free kick and didn't celebrate, which still gives me shudders. Um, after a nine win streak with the last win being Man City at home, probably lost us momentum. We need to go on and beat Arsenal away and actually challenge for the league. Man United is an interesting one. We're gonna, we've are gonna we got a few from Man United, so we'll get to it. But I think the, the theme with Man United is kind of <laughs> sort of ups and downs in terms of momentum. Um, they seem to have lost their way in a few different points and you guys put forward a few, but that could have been one. So Crystal Palace getting in the way there. Wilson J93, I knew we wouldn't get top four when we beat Man United 7-0, then lost to Bournemouth. The Liverpool-Bournemouth connect connection is quite a strong one this year. Chris, uh, uh, of course, there was 9-0 earlier in the season against Bournemouth as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll get on to Liverpool as well. Jonathan Wheatley, uh, the pen decision for Southampton to make it 3-3. Saar kicks the air and they get a penalty. Again, Tottenham will dive into that. I think more crucially, there's a press conference that we need to come back to. And if you've been listening to the podcast over the last few months, I have made it very clear that I feel like that is one of the defining moments of this season that we will remember forevermore. Flacco losing to Southampton in the Carabao Cup plus the charges against us 
woke up our players, Man City, of course, this is to do better physically and mentally. And we haven't looked back since. And importantly, uh, Nathan Jones stopping the quadruple for Man City because that seems to annoy a lot of people. And an exhausted Bronco fan. I think it's a good one. I think this might be a bit of theme of the podcast as well, is the decision of when to sack or not to sack. The timing mm. of that can be as, as as important as the replacement. Uh, exhausted Bronco fan says, Steve Cooper getting a new contract after the 4-0 defeat at Leicester City. They'd had a terrible start to the season. Quick chat on Nottingham Forest, who are you know safe and sound now. Look, it's it's not the prettiest survival story that I've seen over the years, but... There are some sort of gems within it. I look at the the home form and I think that, you know, the, I think one thing I sort of cling on to a lot of time is the power of the home crowd. Mm-hmm. I think you definitely saw that with the city ground this year in that first season. I think you've seen it previously with Brentford. I think you've seen it with Palace in the, in the past as well. Um, but secondly, although such a churn of players, necessarily so, and, and we spoke about that um, with Wolfie, who uh, does uh, Forest Fan TV, in uh, the podcast a couple of weeks ago talking about relegation but to not get rid of Steve Cooper often it's easier to just get rid of them to sort of release the valve <laughs> how do you feel generally about sackings of managers when they're they're clearly a decent manager but it's just not feeling right I think I mean obviously every situation is unique but you can look towards the Sheffield United situation with Chris Wilder a while back you can have managers in my mind that almost become victims of their own success because, sure. you know, Nottingham Forest have gone from the foot of the championship. I don't think any Forest fan or neutral would have expected them to be anywhere near the Premier League when Steve Cooper first took charge. They've ended up getting promoted. And whilst, as you said, there was this huge churn of players, they needed that overhaul. There were a load of players that were on loan there, I think. They didn't have the nucleus to be a competent Premier League side. And even though... You know, I think it was 30-plus players have, have come yeah. into the club. I, but you know, I've kind of changed my outlook on that. It's been, I've sort of understood it. Because it got to a number and I sort of shut off a bit. <laughs> unfairly, I think. Because it got to like 20 and I was like, come on. Mm. But, and I, I mean, I do think there's some elements of this squad building which is iffy at best. You know, like the Jesse Lingard signing hasn't worked. But I understand yeah. at the start. And there's some of the, like, the, the older guys that sort of came through. Like Andre Ayew, I didn't really get it. Kayla Navas has actually done brilliantly for them, but a few older boys, Chris Wood, uh, hasn't worked as well. But you know, with those crucial loan players, the thing that I forgot really is that you've got to replace the, the best players who are the loan players. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to replace everyone else because they weren't good enough that, because that's why you need the loan players. Well, this is, yeah. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because, I mean, I look at someone like Czech Coyate, who of course was at Crystal Palace previously. They, you get these players come in and they are a little bit hit and miss. You know, you're going to have that when you've got that much overhaul. But it's Steve Cooper's coaching, I think, is is there to be shot at, really. You've got the whole England under-17 arc. You've got... Even the job he did at Swansea, I felt, from an outside yeah, perspective, was solid. You know, Fine. so... And it seems to me as though there's this weird narrative with Forrest where you've got their fans who absolutely love him, but there's always an uncertainty over whether or not he's the long-term guy for them. Right. And I don't really understand that. You know, he's got them up, he's kept them there. And they're a, they're a big club historically. Like sure. if they get this, you know, season out of the way and then build properly again, then there's no reason they can't become established in the league in the next few years. I think what's going to be interesting is in terms of that bounce up and down of teams is, you know, Forest has spent a lot of money now. Mm-hmm. So if we, you know, if we're really going to abide by financial fair play, and you know, Everton are at the other side of that scale. Forest can't spend another hundred million, surely. I mean, I don't know the X's and O's, but like, you surely. 
they can't do that again. So Cooper, it's going to be a tricky job for him where you've got, it's got to be four signings instead of 33 and you need mm. to get uh, get rid of a lot of these guys off the wage bill as well to sort of, to continue to build, as you say, because I think even just surviving now in the Prem, I mean, Palace, Brentford, I mean, Brighton, maybe you could say it as well. Aside from that, it's a hundred. It's a hundred million, like minimum. Yeah, it's a right? very difficult division now. I think you know. So hard. You look towards the middle of the table. Obviously, we're currently a point above Chelsea. They've got two games to go. We've got one game to go. They've spent ridiculous amounts of money, and we're aware. You know, this is an off season for Chelsea. They're going to sure. come again. But in order to be safe in a middle pack, you've got to be very, very smart with your dealings. Because, I mean, Fulham, you know, they, they've come in and they're playing this brand of football that's very, very good. They've got the runners off the ball. They, they put you under pressure all the time. They don't they don't give the impression to me of a team that have just got promoted to the Premier League. Mm. And, and that in itself, I mean, potentially next season that will be slightly different because you've got one of Coventry and Luton coming up. That That's a slightly different model to a Fulham. Yeah. But... I do think the division is becoming harder and harder to just sort of consolidate in the middle of. I agree. I, I put it out on Twitter and got some like great responses. And it was interesting to see like the sort of general feel. And I think sometimes it depends on where you're looking. Mm. Like if you're looking at Man City, there's a lot of people getting quite annoyed at like, oh, they've won it again. I'm actually quite at peace with them winning it <laughs> because I'm like, you know, as much as Look, there's there's a lot of th- things going on in the background in terms of the basic level of squad building you know to a man that that that's a, there's a lot of players in that squad that have been there a very long time mm-hmm. and other teams have spent a lot of money to sort of try and get themselves back to that point so sometimes you just got to accept that this is a really special team and we've had special teams in the past and that will it will come to an end at some point they, i don't think they can continue to be at that level forevermore right it just feels uglier because of everything else, you know. But if you look down, like you say, it says where Chelsea are or where the woes that Liverpool have had this year and, you know, the quality of the teams that have gone up and stayed up, Fulham and uh, Bournemouth in particular, there's a lot of quality in this. It's hard to win a game in the in the Premier League. And I think that's, that's, that's good. That's enjoyable. Well, I mean, I, I look at Manchester City specifically. There are plenty of examples, not just in England, but across the European game, where you can spend bundles of money. It doesn't guarantee success. No. I, I personally view it as a situation where Manchester City will always be there or thereabouts when it comes to titles, comes to latter stages of the Champions League. But Pep Guardiola, for me, is the difference. I think if Manchester totally. City lose him, they will become a regular title challenger, but not in the same fashion that they are now. You know, that sort of thoroughbred racehorse that will always last the course and will always come on strong in the last 10 games. It's it's not just a guarantee with any other guy. You know, I feel as though he is the difference. I agree. I totally agree. And I think that's what I mean. That's why I'm at peace with it. It's like, Mm. you've just got a genius of the game here. You know, would they have got him? No. And we speak about that last week. Like, you know, the ripple effect of him just being at that football club. But yeah, I think it's interesting. And I'll just read a couple. Just uh, I won't say the names just in case. I don't want anyone getting you know, pelt or whatever. Uh, ML, in case you're wondering if it is you, because it is you. Um, I think it's been the lowest quality league season in a very long time. Chelsea are in flux. Spurs are only surviving through Harry Kane. United have found that uh, United haven't found that balance yet. Liverpool didn't start playing football until February. West Ham and Leicester are relegation fodder. 
that's that's what I mean about the kind of looking up as into like looking at the totality <laughs> of it. Personally, I'm not trying to throw you under the bus here. Uh, another one, though, maybe one of the best seasons to display how teams from the top and the bottom of the table can be very engaging and unique. World Cup definitely skewed how the Premier Prem has been seen this year through fixture congestion, and next season will probably seem like a slow pace breaker. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so have a think about it, guys. Are you happy with the Premier League this year? Uh, we have so many more defining moments from the Premier League season that we're about to go through after this. Word of the week, momentous. Having a great or lasting importance. Other words very close to momentous include consequential and significant, <laughs> in case you're trying to learn new words. So the Premier League is such a dramatic and fast-paced league that we often forget the defining moments that happened along the way until after the dust settles and we're able to pinpoint what went wrong, where and what the key moments were that led to certain teams finishing uh, where they did. This season, very much like the seasons that have preceded, it has featured some incredible moments that have shaped the table as we see it today. And in this episode of The Ripple Effect, we're going to take a look at how we got here and how the big moments have made this all possible. Okay, Dan, you've put forward some choices, which kind of overlap some of my choices. And then we will try and tick off as many as we can, because, I mean, that is the beauty of football, right? The fact that it is at, at any moment, you know, momentous is one thing momentum is another thing and it's amazing how that can like collapse or you know arrive in, on, the, on in, the flick of a switch indeed yeah. uh let's go uh, you know, let's skip one because uh, let's do let's go back to palace mateta's last gasp win winner at home to leicester to get roy's return up and running that was on april the 1st uh, Mateta scored in the 94th minute to beat Leicester on the 1st of April. From there, Palace go on to beat Leeds 5-1 and only lose two out of their nine matches under Roy Hodgson. Um, let's talk about Roy then. We said we were going to. Do you agree with that statement from my mate Mike who said that as much as it was about Vieira going, it was it was crucial that Roy came back? And how did you feel about Roy coming back initially? I think it was almost like a 24-hour... I say grief's probably the wrong word. I wasn't pro or against the idea of Vieira leaving at that point. Yeah, I, I, I understood the decision, mm. but the optics of bringing Roy Hodgson back after his first four-year spell ended weren't great. That said, in the fullness of time, I think it's it's key to point out, really, for any neutrals that are listening to this who don't necessarily understand the, the squad makeup at that point, when he left... The age profile of that group was in need of a rebuild. It was nearly the same age as Roy. Well, exactly. <laughs> you know, but I don't think he was necessarily the right person to oversee that rebuild because I think, in essence, players like Mark Gay, Michael Elise, Joachim Anderson, they, they saw Patrick Vieira as a coach they wanted to come and work with and play for. I don't think that would necessarily have been the case with Roy. Yeah. And that's not because he isn't capable of coaching. You look at his career, I think it's 47 years. He's been there, seen it and done it. Mm. But... Now that they're here, I think that he has gone in, he has laid out his sort of foundations and they have understood immediately that this guy really gets it. And and ultimately, you know, footballers just want to play cohesive football, win games, score goals, etc, etc. He has brought the confidence back. Eze has been a man reborn. You know, you look at the 
the freedom with which we're scoring goals, five away at Leeds from one nil down. You know, it was it was incredible. Yeah. You know, and and that winner against Leicester, you know, we went behind in that game. Wilfred Zaha got injured in the first half. It felt very much like Groundhog Day. Here mm-hmm. we go again. You know, we got back on level terms. I think we had thirty plus shots in that game which was the biggest shot differential of any game this season in the Premier League not which just was, which was the problem with yeah the era, exactly we there was no there was nothing it wasn't cohesive at all I think that's an interesting point with with Hodgson in terms of and I always talk about this is you, you kind of end up when one manager fails you go you sort of look at the sort of counter opposite mm. of it and although Roy Hodgson as he left there was a feeling of possibly sort of staleness it had run its course um and a lack of excitement, and Vieira came in, and there was an excitement there. Vibes, yeah, vibes indeed. You know, if anything, he may he was briefly cooking. Mm. <laughs> but but what I think what occurred here with with Hodgson is that it was like the safety of him mm. coming in. The sort of, it was almost like it was Bobby Robson vibes. Yeah, he knew the club. Yeah. Like, as much as that sounds like a cliche, it does. And and you know, if you go back to the very beginning of his time at Palace, first time around, the squad that he had. Players like Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Mishi Batshuayi, Johan Kabay, Wilfried Zaha, four years younger, Andros Townsend. We played some very good football in that first 18 months. Right. The age profile got older. And as I say, he wasn't the man to oversee the rebuild. But now that they're here, I think he probably saw the likes of Elise, Eze, etc. And thought, I can get a tune out of this. For sure. And, you know, obviously you can't say for sure, but I feel like that winning goal, I think it was 93 or 94 minutes, was huge for the momentum. Yes, because that's it. You've got to start well, mm. haven't you? You know, or, or get something. And it is about results at the end of the day. So just to get that that goal. Mateta himself. So Finn, who uh, does the sort of uh, editing and vision mixing for us, we were actually messaging about it. And I was like, is Mateta good? And as Finn said, Finn goes... Um, He'd be a cracking centre back, yeah. <laughs> and, and then he went and scored. He's like, Mateta's the greatest. He's chaos, mate. Is what he is. Right. I think Roy Roy likes players that he can rely upon every single week. So Mateta doesn't really fit into that. You know, he, he's all arms and legs. He's mm. everywhere. He, he he's, he's not great in the air. He doesn't have the sort of technical ceiling that someone like an Edward does. But in that particular moment, he's taken the ball, sort of done a three sixty spin on it, in on goal, and it was one of those typical, you know take a breath moments and everyone's waiting for the ball to, and it yeah. goes in and it was just carnage and yeah. I, I think it set us off on that right foot to go into that Leeds game with with an extra boost of confidence with with all the goals that have come you know Berez has scored six goals Bereze has one assist uh, Palace are all the way up to 11th now after being in, in that you know mm. they were in my relegation video yeah, we, we were slipping in yeah for sure was it was it structure that Roy brought or freedom that he brought because generally when I've heard people talk about his methods it's it's structure, but the goals have been so free-flowing. Well, so he did an interview the other day for The Overlap, which obviously is oh, yeah. fronted by Gary Neville, and they were, they were speaking about his methods when he first goes into clubs like this. And he said, you should always look to work on the attacking side of things first because the de- defensive side of things can come later. That's you have to get confidence into the players. I would have thought it would be the opposite. Exactly. Mm. And Gary Neville actually said, when he went into Valencia, <laughs> he <laughs> felt as though his first thing should be defensive solidarity. Right, that's my thing, yeah. And Roy said to him, you concentrate on the attacking side. Don't worry about that, because you can always do defensive frameworks after. Which, as you say, is sort of against the, the typecast view of Roy. Roy yeah. But then, you know, I, it's difficult 
to say for sure, but I think he looks at players like Elise and just sees someone that is obviously of that level. And sure. he will allow those players to flourish. You know, mm. even with youth development, he's the one that put Aaron Wambasaka in the team. He's the one that gave Tyreek Mitchell his chance. It's not as though he's against it if you're good enough. And also, I think you've got to remember, like you say, 47-year career. Mm-hmm. And I've only watched the first half of that overlap thing. But the... He's talking about Inter Milan and like the players that he was really with. We all think we're thinking full. We're thinking Fulham, West Brom, aren't mm-hmm. we? Palace, like he was. You know, he's he's managed incredible players. Got Switzerland to a years. World Cup. Yeah, yeah. You know, he, he, I mean, England. I know England didn't finish well. Obviously, put Harry Kane on corners, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but his his CV is there to be, you know, shot at by anyone really. So definitely a defining moment in terms of a ripple effect moving forward. That form. I think, first of all, makes it an exciting proposition for a future manager. How do you see that playing out? You know, he has returned. Should he stay? I I can imagine that the hierarchy behind the scenes at Palace would be more than open to it because not just that he's a safe pair of hands and he's a guarantee of Premier League football pretty much. We've got Paddy McCarthy there who isn't ready to step up just yet. And obviously succession plans are very dangerous in Premier League football because a flap of a butterfly's wings, you could end up in a situation where it doesn't work out. But I think, and I said this to someone the other day, for me, if Palace are going to be a long-term prospect in the Premier League, it has to be more about evolution rather than revolution because we can't just get someone to come in and play possession football, look to have 70%. We have to utilise the academy. We have to bring through our own players to be financially sustainable because we don't have the size of fan base or the corporate element. And you're sitting on a gold mine there. Exactly. South, South London, London is, is the best place yeah. in the whole of the country, if not the whole of Europe. For, mm. And we've got the Category 1 Academy now. So maybe the plan in a blueprint sense is for him to sort of nurture Paddy McCarthy for another 12 months, be that sort of wise old head that can sort of, you know, give him the idea of how it should be going forward. And then we become almost like a, a mini Bill Bow, you know, do you think, uh, Oh, that's a, yeah, that's interesting. Do you think that, uh, with losing Zaha, uh, which we're going to talk about in a, in a second podcast that we out this week, uh, that in terms of that evolution, how many players do you need? Because I think it's often the case you can feel with your team when they're in good form is, oh, this is the status quo, this har- carries on forever. Mm. And as we know, that often can sort of, the truth is often somewhere in between. So how many players do Crystal Palace need when they're not on fire like they are? Because that, this can't last. I mean, it sounds like a bit of a reductive thing to say, but I don't think you can necessarily go out into the market and replace Wilfred Zaha for Crystal Palace. Oh, yeah. It's almost like the Bale at Spurs thing. You know, they went out and spent the money on, I can't remember how many players it was, but you can't Same. replicate the X factor. Yeah. And, and people who aren't Palace fans have a very mixed view of, of Zaha. Some people think he's incredibly overrated. Some people don't like his attitude. But to us, he has been that lightning rod and the one that has carried us through numerous years. So there's a degree of trepidation from our fan base about the future. But I think you can look towards Elise and, and Eze as sort of the, the pathway on now. Mm-hmm. You know, we've we've performed well without him in the last few weeks. He obviously went off against Leicester at 1-0 down. We won that game. So there is a degree of, not confidence, but a belief that we can actually do something now. Mm. Um, But obviously in an ideal world, he will stay. We don't know yet. He he believes. He believes. We'll talk about that. Uh, We're going to do a free agents podcast, uh, having a look at some of the the guys that have have run down their contract and what they might do. And Zaha will be one of those. Let's keep moving. Uh, Potter, 9th of September. Feels like a 
It sounds like a fever dream, doesn't it? Potter, do you remember when Potter was manager of Chelsea? So Chelsea confirmed the signing of Graham Potter after obviously previously um, firing Tuchel. Do you what? First question before I reveal a few more extra bits here on this sort of defining moment slash ripple effect because it has had a huge effect. Was the defining moment for Chelsea Tuchel getting the sack or Chelsea signing Potter? I think I mean, that's a very difficult question to answer, isn't it? Yeah. I think you can look towards Todd Bowley and the whole Clear Lake Capital project as one that I think wanted to make a splash. They wanted to have long-term thinking. They wanted a project manager. And even though, in essence, obviously Thomas Tuchel has been there, seen it, done it, they probably wanted their own man. I have a view of Chelsea that because of the short-term success they enjoyed throughout Roman Abramovich's time in charge, it's like that has become their DNA. And they're very, very happy with that. They don't like project managers. They want instant success. And it's worked for them very well for 20-plus years. And, I mean, I said it at the time. It's a bit of a controversial statement. I don't think Graham Potter is mean or nasty enough to work at Chelsea because they like the villain arc of their manager. They, I mean, you, sh- you saw it all the time on social media. They were like, this is not a Chelsea guy. As, can Poch be that villain then? No. I, I think it's I an absolutely terrible idea. I I, I agree. I, I, I just don't think... You've got to remember, like... So, for example, I was just thinking about it with Crystal Palace. Next year, what will be thrown at Palace all the time is that they haven't replaced Zaha. Mm-hmm. Like, we know it now. And w- with Chelsea... And Poch, I, I see a similar thing. And I, I did a video about Potter when he got the job and I said, he'll get eaten alive. Mm. Because it just he was a little bit too nice. I also think it was interesting, should he have done the glow up? You know, he got, he went with the turtleneck. Should, should have the kept hair. with his hair the should way it was. Stuck, yeah, should have stuck with that. But also, do you remember when he was like, oh, a few of the lads have been telling me I should get to the barbers. It's very much like your uncle. I, I don't know, it just, yeah. it just felt to me, like you look at Chelsea's recent history, Rafa Benitez, very good coach, been there at the top of the game, but because of the previous connections, because of it, it does matter. They, they, whether whether you view football fans as too tribal or not, it, it makes a difference. Okay. Like Pochettino will forever be associated with Spurs, and he will forever be associated from a Chelsea fans' perspective with not winning anything. And that those two things, when you compare it to what Chelsea expect, is is just you know, it's terminal. It feels like way. It feels like it's just something. I don't know. It's like a two spark. I don't know what Maybe. my analogy is, but like something that's like very close together that it could just create an explosion pretty quickly. I think they'd be better off just begging Jose to come back, like genuinely, <laughs> because he would get it. Mark III. He would. He would buy into it again. Like as much as it might seem like you know you go back to the old tried and tested methods. It's I guess what the they other, want. I, if you want to ever get away from that DNA, then then Poch could be a guy that could provide that. But I think that there's a lot here on there's a lot here on the narrative that will get put forward, which will be interesting to see. But I think people will go that route. And also the Chelsea fans have got to kind of step up themselves and kind of go, nope, you know, we know he's a good manager. We're going to give him time. Anyway, Potter failed. Uh, he goes on to manage to Chelsea for 31 matches using 33 different players in the process. Meanwhile, Brighton are in need of a manager and recruit Roberto De Zerbi, who takes Brighton up a gear. I mean, they were, they were flying. You know, they'd beaten, they'd beaten Man United convincingly. 
They were looking pretty good. Deserby, though, goes on to average 1.6 points per game, winning 14 of his 13 match- 30 matches in charge. Guys, Brighton to a minimum of sixth place at the time of recording. And due to Chelsea stealing Potter, it has not only strengthened Brighton, but also played a big part in dispelling that there is a big six in the Premier League. Let's touch on the big six thing, because I've also got a question on how would it have played out if Potter had stayed at Brighton? Where do you think they would have finished? Now, I know you don't like talking about Brighton, but do you think, how do you feel about the the big six um, idea when it comes to the Premier League? I think it's there to be disrupted if you've got an innovative way of going about it. Because, you know, ultimately, money is king. We've said it in this podcast already. You know, clubs like Spurs and Chelsea have been off the boil this season. There is no getting around it. Even Liverpool have not been anywhere like you would expect. So you would assume that it will be coming back, you know, another wave of of the established sort of clubs. The beast, don't exactly. you? Like 2016, it was like that, wasn't it? But then I look at it and think, the way that Brentford go about their business the way that Brighton go about their business, the disruption that Newcastle have caused with the money that they've got behind them, with that tidal wave of enthusiasm that Eddie Howe has built, I'm just not sure that it's going to go back to the status quo. Mm. Or at least, if there is going to be a status quo, it's going to be disrupted by a couple. You know, it's difficult. Obviously, Brighton have never had European football prior to this season and they're going to have it next. I would imagine given the way they've gone about their recruitment over the last five or so years, they will do everything they can to make sure that they've got the squad necessary to be able to fight on two fronts. And Brentford the same, you know, they will continue to improve, I think, because of the fact they've bought players in, sold them at the right time. It's the way to go about it if you haven't got the size of fan base that an Arsenal or a Liverpool or a Chelsea have. Do you know what I think that I think the thing that's interesting with it is that inevitably it's never everlasting mm. for those teams that be able to go start punching above their weight because they get pillaged a lot of the time. But I do like I think it's been a great season, and I think in terms of how smart you've got to be, how um, sort of wide ranging and f- thoughtful your recruitment's got to be, and then like on the pitch, this sounds a bit weird, but like the hunger levels. Mm. have to be like so extreme because just like two percent I think that's I think we've seen that a little bit with Tottenham and Chelsea where there's something they they've got they they reek of QPR when we went down where you've got players who go I shouldn't be here kind of thing Mm. and it's hard to get out of that you have to be desperate you have to be scavenging for you've got to understand the club and want to sort of fight for the badge as much as it sounds like a cliche. Yeah. Or, and I think even things like you've got to feel part of something, you've got to feel valuable, um, and you've got to feel like you have answers. Mm. And like, that's, I think that's what's been really impressive by Fulham, Brentford, Brighton uh, this season. Do you think... Where do you think Potter would have finished with Brighton this year? Probably... Eighth or ninth. Yeah, I it, think he still would have done well, right? It's difficult to tell, obviously, but it feels like Roberto Deserbi <laughs> has, has come in and sort of taken the handbrake off, if you see what I mean. Mm. I, obviously, Graham Potter's career is, is very impressive. He has done, other than the Chelsea job, which he's been paid for handsomely, and I'm sure he will come again, it felt like Brighton were the true definition of a long-term project because it was gradual progress. They were getting into games winning them more often than not by the time he left. But it, it feels like it's like a supercharged version of Graham Potter's yeah. time in charge. And I don't know whether it will last. You mm. know, that is the other fact. Maybe it's a bit like a firework that goes bang and then all of a sudden. But 
at the moment it feels very much like it's built on solid foundations because of their recruitment. Yeah, and and because so, you could think it's like a bit of a Bielsa ball thing mm. where. Uh, they'll get kind of found out, but there's so much more control with what Brighton are doing as opposed to what Leeds would, were trying to do. That I think, uh, you know, I think it's got longevity. And I think what's great about Brighton is their ability to sort of show their teeth in terms of the transfer market and not, mm. like Casado going, you're not, no, you're not going. I quite like that. I, I would argue that there is, I mean, obviously it's only a short time period, but I feel like this last six to 12 months, there might be a bit of a shift in terms of what players view as the long-term prospects of them leaving clubs like Brighton to go and, and play for a Liverpool or a Manchester City. Yeah. You know, Calvin Phillips, on the bench. Calvin Phillips is a prime example. Great example. You know, I'm not suggesting that he would have kept Leeds up, but I would imagine he would have been far happier in his day-to-day life. I don't really know. I mean, he may well think, you know, I've gone to Manchester City, we've won a title, it's great, yeah. whatever. But, you know, <laughs> clubs like Brighton, as much as it pains me to say it, you know, if you're playing for them, you're winning weekly, you're in Europe, it, it's not a bad life. Playing good football. Exactly. You're adored the by the fans. Yeah. It, it, it's not the same, I think, as 10, 15 years ago where the be-all and end-all was to go and play for Manchester United. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, maybe I'm wrong in that. Maybe there will no, be a mass right. exodus, but, but I feel like it's it's there for... Well, I was chatting about, I was doing a video on Man City and if they're the greatest or not. And I think one th- the one thing I had to say was that in terms of squad mm. I think it's the greatest I think it's the greatest squad but also I was talking about that in around the idea of when you sort of put them up against Man United at that time you didn't have the same size of squad no. and now is a very clear understanding you're going to play 60 games a season and you have to have two unbelievable players in every position mm. and they're kind of okay with it generally because they because of the way that Pep does it, he, they all know they're going to get 25 games a season. But you're right. If you go to, you've got to be, I mean, apart from Calvin Phillips, he doesn't seem to be able to get a game. Got one last week. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's interesting. Um, and yeah, it's, it's an interesting time to be a Brighton fan. They've got to be absolutely buzzing with the season so far. Less so, Southampton, who uh, defining moment of the season for sure has to be hiring Nathan Jones. This was on the 10th of November. Before the World Cup, sort of during the World Cup, uh, he was sacked after eight Premier League matches in charge, winning only one game in the process. Did beat Man City in the FA Cup. They knocked us out of the FA Cup as well. Did they? Well, uh, he also gave uh, some of the most ludicrous interviews of all time. Great example, I think, of as much as, and from what I've read, there were a lot of problems sort of behind the scenes of him sort of, just a sort of uh, a confusion of message. So hard to be a manager, isn't it? <laughs> By the way, um, but these the interviews were the ones where you're going like, come on. Yeah, they were very David Brent. So Brent. So the 10 men was to our detriment, he said, in his last game, which was against Wolves, because it made it a free hit for them and added more pressure onto us. What I remember driving home from QPR and hearing that and I'm going, you're gone. You are eight games. I don't care. You're gone. Uh, he also said they, the fans, were watching a different game to me. Well, <laughs> he also said, "Come on." He said they weren't many. Be- there weren't many better than me in Europe. He let the, he let the people know. I think it was before a game that they lost. And then he said, "I could have stayed in a mining community, been a PE teacher, and had a nice life. Married a nice Welsh girl. I don't. I want to test myself on every level. And that's nothing against Welsh women." <laughs> That's unbelievable. That's that so quote. Holloway. I that's saw so that and Holloway. assumed it was a wind-up. You know, you, so get, you get those quotes where you think, well, someone has, has pushed that a bit too far. Tweaked but it, actually, yeah. it was he just out it. of his mouth. Yeah. Um, incredible, really. Uh, the ripple effect of that is, I think that's a huge debt to the huge detriment of 
of championship managers that you might people might not go for these guys. I mean, at the very least, they'll have to have a very different um, personality to Nathan Jones. I wonder if that will be something that people will be very wary of now is that those sort of because I've seen it. If you think of the, the managers that are quite interesting at the moment, you've got the likes of Carrick or Mark Robbins or Kieran McKenna. And they're all quite quiet. Measured. Yeah. And because I think the more you say, the more you can get yourself in trouble. And I think Nathan would agree with me on that one. But he came in also in terms of the transfer window, players like Onowachi coming in, who he was like, okay, he's going to go a bit more direct. That's what he did at Luton. That worked. And then he's gone after a couple of matches. You've then, you then sort of mess with your squad a little bit. Absolute disaster of, of a, a hiring. I remember tweeting going, I think I said, like, I said, he's the worst manager in the league. And the reason I was kind of saying that was because you know, the standard of manager in the Premier League is outrageous. It's high, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't having a go. He hadn't really proved it yet. But, I mean, it, it came to be, didn't it, that he was just no way near it. Unwritten rule of football. If you have three managers, your season will probably be a farce. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, any thoughts on Nathan Jones you'd like to share? I feel, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to be an abrasive personality. I think we've seen it over the years. You can get certain individuals that will go in all guns blazing and they can get people on side. Sure, Jose, yeah. You know, even Sam Allardyce has his own way of doing things that mm. because it has sure a You've of, got to have thick skin, though. Yeah, of course. And I he think didn't. maybe he was almost like somebody that was putting on a bit of a face that he didn't truly believe in himself. I could be wrong there. He no, may, he may well say... You fake know, it till you make it kind of thing. Yeah, but, but ultimately, you've got to to really believe that. And I think everything he said, if you read it on paper, you'd think, oh, this guy, he fully backs himself. But watching him actually deliver it in press conferences, there was always this little part of me that thought, come on, mate. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was it. That was the phrase the whole world was saying it. Come on, mate. I think you do. You do think that sometimes. Like, you know, haven't he? I think that about referees a lot of the time. Yeah. I watch your home, you know, Matt Loftus-Rhyde, I go, just give it. Mm. <laughs> What's wrong with you? It's an easier life. And yeah, Nathan Jones didn't want an easier life. I've um, I've pinched your, I've sort of read through your picks for you. We're going to go through some other ones, but I want to give you the floor for, for this last one before we get into those one, those ones, which is uh, this one. Let me show you. Uno Emery. Talk to me. And the Villa job. I, I feel as though, and you know, I get a lot of people saying, oh, he's obsessed with Aston Villa, this, this, this. But Uno Emery, yeah, a Who lot. Who do people think that you're most obsessed with? Which team? I, it goes, it goes between. It used to be Newcastle, then Leeds, Villa, Everton. I get a lot of. Is that just because you're kind to them? I think there's this perception amongst Big Six Twitter that I just love clubs that the aren't successful. But I quite like fan bases that are quite sizable but don't take themselves too seriously, and that is certainly a, a sort of. Yeah, trope that Aston Villa fall yeah, into sure. because they're a huge club historically, but they don't expect success. Mm. And I, I look at Steven Gerrard. I think it was either his first or his second game in charge of Villa. They played at Sellers Park and they were at it from the very first minute. And I thought, and plenty of people around me thought, I think that, we all did, yeah. this is the real deal. Yeah. But quite clearly, very quickly, he became that abrasive personality that rubbed people up the wrong way, didn't get the fan base on side. I, I have this sort of perception of individuals, whether it's Lampard, whether it's Gerard, whether it's Vieira, where unless you buy in fully to what that fan base wants, there will always be this air of, you think you're too good for us. And, and you have to work very hard, in my mind, to sort of dispel that. Right. And 
I'm just not sure that anyone at Villa ever thought that Steven Gerrard... Because for me, it was always there that Jurgen Klopp was going to one day vacate the Liverpool hot seat and Steven Gerrard was just waiting. I think the problem was he was, because of his playing career and I think his mindset full stop, at Rangers he was like, this is the standard up here and I expect you to make your way up here. And it worked Mm -hmm. because that is, you know, Rangers are used to winning titles, right? I think when he went to Villa, everyone went, oh, he's going to do the thing where mm. he does like, he sets the standards and then we're going to be, you know, challenging where we haven't been before. And that's fine if you have no excuses until you need an excuse. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what happened a little bit with, with Gerard. And there was a lack of sort of like, it's so hard, isn't it? Because, you know, we're talking to Potter and going, he's a little bit too soft because he's a bit more, you know, a bit kinder. Um, and then Gerard, it was kind, it felt like it was kind of the opposite, didn't it? Well, I mean, there was one specific issue that I remember cropping up. I think it was Jacob Ramsey, where he wasn't getting the amount of minutes that Villa fans thought he should be getting. Right. And I can't remember which Villa journalist it was, but Stephen Gerrard sort of had a pop at him in a press conference about, oh, have you got his phone number? Are you, are you backing him? And I remember thinking, this is not going to end well for you. Yeah. Because fans of those clubs, they... I say they care about the journalists, but the journalists are putting their views forward. So by attacking the journalists, you are, in essence, attacking the fans for asking that question. And I just feel it's very much a siege mentality that's like him against everyone else. So, but it, it all comes back to the results, doesn't it? Because like you say, like if you if he was then instead like incredibly zen throughout, mm. then you get charged with not having not enough passion. Mm. So it's, it is tricky. And it does come down to results at the end of it all. So uh, Catherine... Anyone who knows my content will know who Catherine is. If you don't, then you need to watch more of my content. Uh, it pointed out on Twitter, she's a Villa fan, that uh, Douglas Louise's red card against Fulham was key in Villa's 3-0 defeat to Fulham, which ultimately led to Gerard's sacking. After Gerard's sacking, caretaker manager Aaron Danks took charge in his first game to beat Brentford 4-0. I think Danny Ings might have got a hat-trick in that one. And Louise picked up an assist. And since Gerard's sacking, Louise has been immense for Emery in midfield and has been an important as important as Watkins in their push for Europe. Uh, it's also worth noting that in the last uh, transfer window of the summer, uh, they ne- he nearly went to Arsenal, so that was probably defining within it all because he has been so crucial. But I think look, Emery, Emery's arrival is the big one here, isn't it? Um, and it's amazing what he's done. Um, he's also led to... Him coming has led to Ollie Watkins going to another level. I think a couple of moves there I think are quite interesting. One, letting Danny Ings go. And going, it's you. Mm-hmm. You're the guy. You don't have to worry about Danny Ings anymore. Not that Danny Ings was a problem, but I, th- I think there was there was a sort of crowbarring going on there a lot of the time. He's got 15 goal involvements since the World Cup. Villa are now in seventh spot. They need a win to get into the Conference uh, League next season, which I think would be great. We were talking about this probably before we started recording. We were saying that mm-hmm. Conference League is fun. It could be fun because you get a longer European tour and the chance of winning it. And so the standard think, of the opposition as well. Like yeah. realistically, you can win most games if you're a competent Premier League side, I feel. Absolutely. What do you think about Emery then? I, I just feel as though, I mean, I said it at the time when he came in, he's a very, very good coach. That If you look at his CV over the last 10, 15 years, he's been there at the very top of the game. You know, it's not as though Aston Villa shouldn't be able to attract a coach like him. But I think even their fans were over the moon that he came in from Villarreal and, and brought that entire ethos with him. You know, he mm. feel because the Arsenal job, he was very much typecast, the whole accent thing. It was, 
I mean, for my money, it's almost impossible to step into a manager who has been at Arsenal as long as Arsenal. David Moyes syndrome. For exactly. Sure. Yeah. So you almost want to be the manager after that manager. And and always, obviously, yeah. if you're Unai Emery, you can't turn down that chance. But I think it did cloud a lot of people's views towards his true qualities as a coach. Mm. And he's gone into Villa at the ideal time because, you know, they were... Malleable. Yeah, and, and the whole Steven Gerrard thing, it left them in limbo. You know, they were looking for someone to come in and really take that and run with it. Mm. And I think if you examine the amount of money there is behind the scenes of Villa and the ambition that exists there... You know, they really want to push on. And I think this summer they're going to spend pretty well and they're going to try and build the squad even further. I, I think it's a project that can go a hell of a long way, to be honest. Do you think? I'm, I'm intrigued. I feel like they're running a little bit hot. Do you? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. I think it was a perfect, perfect appointment at the perfect time. And I think he, I think the squad that's there, he fits that squad. Hmm. But I do think... And I think they could have a really good run next year in Europe, you know, and it all being well, they, they get there. I just think that I think there'll be a slight drop off. Maybe. I think mean, there'll be a slight drop off. There's got to be but a couple of clubs in that mix that go, not, not go completely, but drop off from where they are yeah, because yeah. they can't all finish. In like, It's not going to happen, is it? When you consider the likes of Tottenham and Chelsea have been off it. I think, I, I think with this doesn't totally work because they've just been so phenomenal in terms of getting the points that they've got. But it does seem like in a lot of games, they are sort of a counter-attacking team, which is kind of like what Villarreal were. But Villarreal would have sort of good seasons and then sort of mid table seasons. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes next uh, year. Last one from you. Leeds, late winner at Anfield. Uh, we got this on Twitter as well. Sicencio, um, Somerville scored the winner in the 89th minute. Why did you put that as a funny moment? Because, for my money, it kept Jesse Marsh in a job a lot longer than it probably should have done. Mm. You know, I remember watching that at the time. The away end was packed. It was a, a mad moment for them. And, you know, talk about momentum. It really put them on an upward trend again. But it was almost the false dawn. Right. You know, I, I think Jesse Marsh, similar to what we were just talking about with the whole Wenger thing, following on from Bielsa is a pretty much impossible task mm. because of his whole aura. And Jesse Marsh is pretty much the polar opposite of Marcelo Bielsa, you know, the professor, this guy that thinks so deeply about football. Yeah. Jesse Marsh always gave me the impression that he was like a, a middle manager in a huge firm that was just happy to be there. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm not suggesting he hasn't got the coaching credentials, but he was never going to... He was on the soft side, he, wasn't he? He was never going to capture the Leeds imagination in the way that Bielsa did. It's impossible. Yeah. So... Uh, but he was all, you know, jumping up and down and, and very much involved in that moment. But I think, and obviously it's a flap of a butterfly's wings, you can't say for sure, but had they not won that game, he wouldn't have got next. Yeah, I mean, how yeah. long was he there after that? I can't even remember, but it was a while. February, yeah. I, think he, I think he went. And then uh, uh, Javi Gracia, mm. I always get his name wrong, uh, came in and then he was gone. And then again, my unwritten rule of three managers in a season. It's a pretty solid, a solid theory. Yeah, I think it's interesting because... In terms of having the manager that you wanted, yeah, if he doesn't win that game, you know, that's 29th of October, just before the World Cup, you make the call, mm -hmm. you go, okay, let's go get the guy that we definitely, definitely want. And there probably were some better options at that time. And, and yeah, you might have been in a better position. Look, the fact that you're getting from Bielsa ball to Allardyce ball in 14 months, it's, it ain't right. And interesting one in terms of that goal, he uh, this goal is actually assisted by Patrick Bamford, so a bit of kindness for Jesse Marsh here. Uh, uh, it was assisted by Patrick Bamford, who came on as a substitute. However, he picked up an injury straight after this match and didn't play again for three months, which did I think definitely hurt Jesse Marsh because at times the the performances were okay; they just didn't have that quality to score a goal. Uh, although I know Bamford has has been struggling a little bit. Also, I think it's just 
Jesse Marsh has been linked with the Southampton job and has been linked with the Leicester job. Mm-hmm. I think if he wasn't so hotly out of the Leeds job, he might have taken either of those at different time and who knows what would have happened. Oh, I remember that happening, the links at the time. And even I thought that's too soon. That's, mm. that's too combustible, you know. I agree. Uh, right, we've got more moments. Man United, Tottenham, talk about the press conference, Darwin Nunez, loads more to come after this. Right, other moments. We've actually focused on some of the other guys, which is good. She's crucial. Uh, but now it's time to have a look at, say, the Man United and the Liverpools, because I mean there are some massive talking points here. So I, I kind of wanted to put forward <clears throat> Man United. There's a few with Man United. So I think in terms of that momentum that we were talking about right at the start of the podcast, Man United against Liverpool, I felt was huge from mm. a positive point of view. 22nd of August, I think after two defeats, Brentford and Brighton, who actually, you know, down the road, you realise that actually, you know, that, that happens, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but at the time, you're thinking, oh, you know, something's completely wrong here. They go and take on Liverpool, who it was the other side of it, who played yourselves and mm-hmm. Fulham, I think. We and, got a point up there as well. Yeah, both got draws. And everyone's thinking, OK, this could be ugly for, for Man United and Ten Hag. But I think that game was huge in terms of not just the, the result, but the performance for me. Um, but I think the the big one, the big big one, and actually I kind of made us see the first proper proper crack I think of Liverpool. Although we start, yeah, we, throughout those first few games we felt a bit funny about them. Um, we'll get onto Darwin Nunes, don't worry. Ronaldo leaving on the twenty second of November. What I would say in terms of defining moment before before the season even begins, I do think a defining moment in Man United's season was him putting that tweet out hmm. miles after. <laughs> after you're not going to be in the Champions League saying, oh, I'd like to go because I want Champions League football. That set the tone for everything that, that happened here. Um, but of course, he actually left after that Piers Morgan interview. Uh, the interview led to the club terminating his contract. How did you feel about all of the Ronaldo stuff? Do you think the Ronaldo saga was will go down as a, a real enjoyable factor of, of what Eric Ten Hag probably needed in his first season in charge? I think... It was the ideal moment for Eric Ten Hag to stamp his authority on that group because in the period post-Ferguson, they've had some very, very big personalities take over. Van Gaal, Mourinho, etc. But I don't think Manchester United, as a collective entity, were ready for someone, and this is no disservice to Eric Ten Hag at all, but for someone to come in and stamp their authority on that squad in the way that he did. Because it was very much a model where you've got these big guys, Pogba, Ronaldo, etc. And it felt very much like they had Manchester United eaten out of the palm of their hand. Yeah, And, and they've got a guy in Eric Ten Hag that doesn't necessarily have the same credentials as a Jose Mourinho. But it, they, it felt to me like Manchester United's fan base, similar to what you were saying in terms of Chelsea, and then buying into a long-term project. It was like, no, no, we're not going to be beholden to one guy anymore, regardless of who it is. This is what the manager wants to do. We're going to back him. And I think it's it strengthened his position as manager significantly. Sure. I think it was... People kind of give him a lot of credit for it. And I th- fair enough. I would say that it was the obvious thing to do. Mm. I th- he played it very well in terms of like, oh, no, we, we want Ronaldo. We want him to stay. We want him to stay. We want him to stay. But then to not to not play him because he, you know, he didn't 
stand up to the sort of you know values and the behavior that was necessary i thought was was the obvious thing to do because i think i could imagine that entire dressing room going sort of head down like mm. scared to kind of like make eye contact with ronaldo and were massively relieved when he got shunned a little bit probably yeah and put in his box power vacuum yeah yeah for sure and it, you know like you talk about pogba's and those kind of players did feel like there's yeah there was sort of personalities within that squad that were sucking the life out of it a little bit and, and a bit like maybe sort of a Chelsea back in the day. The only difference is, you know, Lampard, Drogba, um, Terry, those guys provided the output as well. That's yeah. the difference. I mean, I, so it's completely separate, but it, it sort of, for me, speaks to the whole feel of Eric Ten Hag at Manchester United. There was a situation where Marcus Rashford, I think he'd reported late by five minutes for the game away at Wolves. And he was on and fire it, yeah. at the time, wasn't he? And, and at that point, it was very much like, well, Marcus Rashford starts. Mm. But then he didn't start him. I think he brought him off the bench and he scored. Wolves, I think, yeah. and, and it felt like, you know, you've got a player there who's in the peak of his form. But he's towing the, the company line, as it were. He's bought into what Eric Ten Hag wants. He's not sulked. He's come off the bench. He scored a big goal. And it's like the authority that Alex Ferguson used to have. Mm. He's almost getting back with that manager. Yeah. And as much as I'm sure they're looking at Manchester City, they're looking at Arsenal and thinking, you know, we want to be up there next season. You have to look at their overall campaign as a success because they've got themselves probably back into the Champions League. And, and I like I like the fact that they... The, Look, you can look at it one way and go, oh, we should have been challenging for blah, blah, blah. But I actually think there's more merit in the sort of the bounces up because I think previously, and you can't, you know, get rid of the whole squad straight away. So there's going to be some elements of one, lack of quality, two, lack of character maybe to manage games at times. But he brought, he made some fantastic signings. Mm. And when it was starting to get a bit hairy time, time and again, they sort of had enough to to sort of, bounce back up and I think that's that's a huge marker for them moving forward because they, it didn't feel like they had that for, for a long time and I think that comes from Eric Ten Hag and we've been talking about different managers and it's like soft hard yeah. let's go down this sort of egg boiled egg analogy I think he's a per and he looks a bit like an egg he, <laughs> he's got the, he's the perfect he's a perfect egg there's a little there's a sort of gentle bit of dippiness there but he's not full hard like Gerard. he's not soft like Jesse Marsh anyway uh <laughs> That happened, uh, Ronaldo leaving it happened right before the World Cup, of course. And yeah, and off the back of it, Rashford caught fire as well. So probably was part of it. And again, you know, if you think of before Ronaldo was there, Rashford was a good player. Mm. Bruno Fernandes was uh, far more influential and that, that has returned. Uh, the other side of it, Casemiro sending off at Palace as a defining moment. Few of you put that forward. It led to a draw uh, against uh, Palace. They then drew with Leeds, I think, in the next match. Or no, or maybe they then got defeated by Arsenal in the next match, which sort of stopped their title charge. They would won like five of the last six. And if they'd beaten Arsenal, they would have been, I think, five points mm -hmm. off them. Um, so Casemiro not being available. But I think, again, in terms of defining moments, that kind of comes with Casemiro, doesn't it? Like You're going to have suspensions here and there. Of course. And I don't think there's any real harm in saying that I never felt as a neutral as though Manchester United were truly in the title race. No, me neither. Like, they were there or thereabouts, but I think if you want to go back to that word project, it would have been almost reductive to suggest that they should be challenging for that at this point because yeah. it is a long-term process. Sure, and to go to your point where you were saying sometimes you can sort of be the victim of your own success, mm. I think that would have been too too much I think it's sort of very sort of softly softly so far with Man United and it does feel I think the, the best thing you can say about Man United is that they haven't really been much of a story 
in the second half of the season. Like they've plugged away. Yeah. They've done what they've got to do. Like even the game against Bournemouth the other day, a one 0 win away from home, job done, clean sheet, three points. It, it's not spectacular, mm. but it's what they needed in this campaign. I think. Yeah. Darwin Nunez red card against Palace, fifteenth of August. <laughs> uh, he was sent off as well against Palace. There's something going on here with Palace. Liverpool lost their next game two one to Man United. Um, after that, they got beat. Uh, they beat Bournemouth nine nil. And Firmino scored two and assisted three in that game. Had Nunez not been sent off and had a three-match ban, would they have even beaten Bournemouth? And would they have beaten them by such a big score that meant that Scott Parker kicked off, got sacked, Gary O'Neill then gets put in as the manager? It's the ultimate ripple. Exactly. And maybe Bournemouth don't stay up. So you need to thank Darwin Nunez. Or Joachim Anderson. Or Joachim Anderson. Probably, yeah. Probably Anderson, to be fair. It was the ultimate wind-up. There yeah, was, there was, he's there too was good a, looking to be behaving like there that. There was a montage that got put on Twitter of him oh, yeah. just spending, it was obviously the entire game, but he's it was him, two it? minutes of just him just winding him up. Yeah. It was great. It, it, I think that was really a defining moment. I think he's recovered quite well, but in terms of the sort of narrative going into it that he was going to be the guy, I think if he doesn't get sent off, has the last 20 minutes, pinches a goal to get the win, that could have, like... Then plays Bournemouth to you know, then plays Man United, pitches a goal there, then goes to Bournemouth, gets a hat trick. All of a sudden, Darwin Nunez, who I think is a confidence player, hmm. it could have been very different. I feel as though he, I remember, was it the Charity Shield where he and Erling Haaland were being put up against one another as yeah. who's going to be? And I'm thinking, you know, it's not really fair on the guy. No, no, because I don't he's think coming it was. to Liverpool. I'm not suggesting that he wasn't able to go and score 30 goals in his first season, but it shouldn't be the norm. What Erling Haaland has done is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously no one foresaw that he was going to score the amount of goals he has for Manchester City because it's ridiculous. Sure. But Darwin Nunez, for me, has had quite a good debut season. I yeah. think he's been dynamic. All right, he's missed chances that he should probably be putting away. But his actual goal tally is not poor by standards that you would normally set for a debut season I in the Premier League. I think he's just short of a good season, yeah. I'll be honest. But I think it's certainly not as... It's not Timo. We're not in Timo Werner land no, here. Not at all. You know, but I think you're right. It, that's the problem with a lot of these things. Was it? There's an idea. So Donald Trump had a thing where I can't remember what it's called. Something like desensitization or something, where he would say outlandish thing after outlandish thing, right? And then he would do something that is bang average for a president, and the newspapers would go, "Look at Donald Trump being a good boy, yeah. doing his presidential stuff." And I think that's the problem that Darwin Nunes has had, whereas Haaland's like gone so far <laughs> that even the sort of normal stuff for yeah. Darwin is kind of getting lost. Well, it's, I mean, you look at Harry Kane. How many goals has he scored this season? Yeah. And it's almost like, well, that's great, but you're not Erling Haaland. But that's, he's not in the team of the year. He's got like 48% of Spurs' goals this year. Exactly. And he's Joke. doing it in a Spurs side that realistically, he's got no right to be scoring as many goals as he has. Yeah, yeah. So you can sort of explain away, relative, well, I say relatively, genuinely impressive performances across an entire campaign. I'm yeah. not putting Darwin Nunez in that same bracket, but I think for a debut season in a new country, in a new league, he's actually done pretty well. I would really... I can really see, especially him on the left-hand side now. Mm. I think through the middle, it just does not work for me. But on the left-hand side with Cody Gakpo, I think, you know, Firmino's leaving. He said himself, it's the end of a cycle. I think he could have a really good year next year. I think I think you're right. But I do think that that sending off massively hurt him. I think it was a defining moment for his season, if not uh, Liverpool's. Here's one. I don't know if I believe this one or not, but, it, you know, it does seem to have a huge ripple effect. So let's hear it out. And then, Dan, you can say what you think. Xhaka at Anfield. 
Simple as that. 9th of April, Shaka left a foot in at Anfield with a score at 2-0 to Arsenal. This provoked the Anfield crowd, according to Gary Neville, and allowed Liverpool to get back into the match. From this moment, Arsenal only go on to win two of their next seven matches, ultimately lose the league. And it may all stem from Xhaka leaving a foot in at Anfield. Conversely, Liverpool went on an eight-match unbeaten run, which included seven wins on the bounce, with Trent playing a key role in the process. Are you having it? Not fully. I'm not having it. I, I can I can see it from the Liverpool perspective, but I, I personally, if I was going to boil Arsenal's collapse, is probably a, a pretty provocative word to use. But if I was to pinpoint dollars. one moment there, yeah. it's Saka missing a penalty at West Ham. I, well, you're skipping along the running order here, but I, I agree with you. Let's go there because yeah, I think it is that. I, I, so the Xhaka thing as well. Go back and watch it. He doesn't really leave a foot on him, and also. It's just an attempt, not an attempt to win the ball, but an attempt to just get in an opponent's face. I don't really see it as this big thing. If if you want to give it to anyone, it's actually Trent overreacts. Xhaka doesn't actually do that much. Trent somewhat overreacts, probably because they're 2-0 down. And that might get the crowd going a little bit. But again, look at that first goal that Liverpool score back. It's a fortunate goal. Mm. There's a sort of deflection and Salah's at the back post. So I'm not having it. I think that's... I think he's sort of getting... He's getting Robbie Savage there. If it wasn't Granite Xhaka, if it was... I'm saying so much nonsense today, by the way. If it was Martin Odegaard that had done that, I don't think you would have the same narrative. That's it. That's it. I don't think... I think they've... Sometimes, pundits, and we all do it, you go so far down a road, you're a little bit stuck. You have to buy into it, yeah. Yeah, so I kind of have it with Darwin Nunes. People People think I've got a problem with him. I really don't. I just... I, the thing, the questions that I had at the start of the season were were kind of correct. It's confirmation bias. Uh, yeah, but I, I think he's a you know I think he's a good lad and a good player, and I think he's going to have a good season next year. And I think for Neville and Carragher, I think they don't know what to do when it comes to Xhaka. So when these things happen, they go, oh, "Look, I'm right." Well, do you remember back end of last season he came out and, and spoke about the mentality of the group after they lost to Newcastle? Yeah, and there was, was this big sort yeah. of storm in a teacup about it. And I'm just thinking, well, this is a guy that just feels this way, mm-hmm. and he said it publicly. I don't, I don't see. He was honest, right? Exactly. You yeah. want footballers to be honest. You want them to be full blooded. All right. He may well have got the Anfield crowd up and and the ripple effect of that. But I still think that a sack of penalty, because West Ham, I think, went and scored within a minute of that missing. You know, that in itself was a huge blow for Arsenal as far as I'm concerned. I think it's, there's an element of expectation is crucial in this as well, and momentum is crucial in this as well, right? Because with the Saka one, they scored in the seventh minute and the tenth minute. They were brilliant. Carragher says himself, self, you've got to think about um, goal difference here. Because if they can get the third one, they could be flying here. Mm. So, obviously, it goes back to be 2-2, which I think was the start of West Ham improving and, and sort of coasting to safety. And again, another question there, which is interesting, is the David Moyes. It's so easy to get zoned in into that the moment that you're in, but that can change very quickly. And sometimes you do have to trust the man. And David Moyes has... You know, he has got them back where, obviously, that they wanted to be much higher up in the league. But, you know, if they win that Europa Conference League and have a mid-table season, that's, you know, that's, that's they're, great. They're back fun. in Europe anyway. If yeah, they exactly, win that, exactly. So. Great point. But, yeah, that for Arsenal, to, to be 2-0 up against West Ham and to not get the job done and Saka to have that opportunity. And to miss the target as well. Yeah, it's heartbreaking for him because you like, he can't not like Saka. There will be Any some people out there that don't, but I don't see sure. how. Yeah, well, they're idiots. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, but I think that is sadly, 
that is the moment because it's not just a draw against Liverpool. It's two draws back to back, which put the pressure on the next game against Southampton. And the manner of it. Yeah. You know, if they if if they'd come from two 0 down at West Ham to salvage a point, then maybe you know, you look at the Southampton game at the Emirates, you can argue that it was vibes and I mean I got a bit of stick off certain people on Twitter because I said that for me Zinchenko honking his horn wasn't symptomatic of Arsenal losing their heads like it's just someone enjoying a moment like Mm. I don't think I understand the whole narrative about maybe they were a bit too emotionally involved and and not going about it in a tried and tested title winning method but I don't think you can slate people for getting emotionally involved it it keeps you fresh as far as I'm concerned Uh, I would disagree with that a little bit because I think sometimes you've got to keep it in because you, like, if the well's a bit too deep, then you can't reach mm. into it. Do you know what I mean? And I think that is a dangerous thing when you're, you've got to retain that composure. I, yeah, I, my, that, my view on that's a little bit different. Zinchenko's kind of like that, you know, generally. Yeah, he's a bit time. extra. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think this time next year, if Arsenal are in a good place, I, I think you'll see very careful celebration. Yeah. And, and maybe they will have learned from it, you know. It's obviously a cliche, but they're a young group of players. They've sure. not been in this position before. Yeah, totally. Uh, another quick one. Uh, Liverpool uh, losing 5-2 to uh, Real Madrid. A lot of people talking about that. I think <coughs> in terms of ripple effects, more so than defining moments. Not sure it's totally a defining moment, but Joe Gomez in particular had a really bad game in this one. Canate's place feels undisputed now. And this was one of the things that needed to happen for Trent, maybe to become that inverted fullback as well possibly I think again it's a myriad of things but Liverpool uh, were miles off fourth place at the time and this maybe gave them the uh, ability to focus on the league again I slightly disagree because I think the fixtures I saw the fixtures for, from quite a way out and I thought they'll go on a run here mm. and uh, yeah they need to be they need to be as upset as they were a couple of months ago about the season for me because I, I don't think they I'm not sure they fixed anything I think when as a season can progress this this when you've got nothing to play for and then you go on a run, I don't. It doesn't really wash with me personally. I, I mean, I sort of feel Liverpool are in a good place long term because of the faith their fan base have in Jurgen Klopp. Mm. You know, the man walks on water there quite rightly. He's brought them their first Premier League title. He's a very big, charismatic character, and that strength of character has seen him through these choppy waters. Where if they had someone... I mean, Roy Hodgson has previously managed Liverpool. He drowned. You know, it's not an easy job. But because of his whole personality, I feel as though he has retained the faith necessary for them to go into this summer and attack it again. And if you're looking Christmas, January, and they're still not at it, then I think he himself will fall on his sword. Yeah, interesting. Tottenham. Two, well, two here. There's a there's a predefining moment to the defining moment, I think. So 11th of February, Ben Tenkor, uh getting uh, an injury, suffered a season-ending injury uh, in early February against Leicester. I think they actually lost that game 4-0, um, ruptured his ACL. Spurs went on to lose their next match, which was the Champions League against AC Milan. Um, however, Oliver Skip comes in, scores a wonder goal against Chelsea, which is great for Tottenham fans. But um, he wouldn't have been in the team if Ben Tenkor wasn't injured. And straight after that, Spurs went on to lose to Sheffield United. And then uh, <laughs> the season's truly defined within the space of three weeks. Um, coming to a head on the 18th of March. Who said this, Stan? My players are selfish. <laughs> Tim okay. Sherwood. Tim Sherwood, <laughs> yeah, it was Tim. Uh, Antonio Conte, of course, the Conte press conference rattled the cage of Spurs so much that they didn't bother replacing Conte, despite Spurs being in fourth place in the league at the time. 
since this press conference, they've only won two of their last nine matches, which means they're now in eighth place in the league. Um, I will quick shout out to myself. I said they would drop right down and they have. They have been absolutely useless. And because of this press conference, it's led to Spurs possibly finishing outside the European places, which has also made it harder for them to, one, find a manager, two, sign players, and it could also lead to Harry Kane leaving. That, for me, is number one. What, Kane? Defining, no, sorry. I'm oh, sorry, con- the, the Conte the press conference. Without a doubt, it has moment, to be. Defining moment. Let's come back to that, because I want to hear your defining one at the end of this, because there's a couple more just before, uh, just as we uh, finish up here. So Al- I wanted to put forward Al, Mar- Al Myron's uh, form. Do you remember like everyone having had him in their FPL team? Mm-hmm. Was absolutely killing it in uh, October, November. I think that th- that was crucial because they sort of had a good little start. And Newcastle, I think another defining moment some people putting forward is that game against Man City. Man City looked like they were completely going to run away with it. And then Newcastle sort of went punch to punch with them. Cracking game. I mean, I think Haaland sort of stepped up. But it, it showed that they were going to have a real go. Showed the quality that they had. Showed the quality of Trippier and Bruno Guimaraes as well. But then after that, Almiron um, did, he just did brilliantly, didn't he? Like goal after goal, he was just running really, really hot. And another one, forgive me, I can't remember who tweeted me this, but I think this was an important one. Newcastle beating Chelsea just before the World Cup. Uh, Willock's goal, absolute screamer, 12th of November. I think it was the last game before the World Cup. Scored in the 67th minute, a 1-0 win. At the time, you were kind of thinking that Chelsea and Newcastle were going to battle it out. Um, but the defeat, this deep defeat for Chelsea may have been what provoked them into that big spending in January, which is interesting. See, ripples and defining moments just intertwining as one. And this win also gave Newcastle reassurances of their quality uh, at the time. And it took them to third place over Christmas, which where they could sort of like settle there, couldn't they? And Newcastle have done fantastically, fantastically well. We've got to touch on Man City as well. Uh, Cancelo leaving, leading to a new formation on the 31st of January, I think is a huge one. How do you feel about Man City and the sort of some people sort of putting forward the, like the charges as well that sort of came up against them? I think it was in the same week as that defeat to Nathan Jones, and some people say that, that sort of woke them up. Do you agree with that? I, I think you know it, it's impossible to separate Manchester City from those charges, from the money that they've got, from the squad that they have at their disposal. There will always be detractors and caveats, but I feel as though they are a squad that almost. From my perspective, at least, they mess around throughout the first two thirds of a season Agreed. because they can, yes. if that makes sense. Yeah, like yeah. They, they'll still win games the majority of the time, even when they're not 100%. Because they've got 24 awesome players. Exactly. And, and obviously, you would expect that of them. But, I mean, I always say, it, you look at the improvement that the vast majority of players that work under Pep bring to, even Haaland, you know, he has become far better for me sure. than when he first I turned mean, up. Jack Grealish on the left. John Stones, is, I saw him last week live. I was like, wow. And, and I think they are so beholden to the way that Pep works. I think it's exhausting. I don't necessarily think you can do it for five, six years and feel as though you're at the top of your game. But they are players like Grealish. I mean, there was plenty of narrative about whether or not he should have left Aston Villa, whether he was, you know, wrong to leave his boyhood club. But, you know, he's got to a Champions League final. He's improved as a player. He's clearly realising his own individual dreams. But I look at players like Foden. You know, I'm not sure he would necessarily have become the player he is now mm. if Pep Guardiola wasn't in charge. So I just look at Manchester City and like you said, I don't necessarily begrudge them winning this because I think they are in such a special time. Um and obviously, it's impossible as a neutral to separate the financial charges against them and the amount of money they've got. 
But at the same time, I watched them as a neutral and just marvel. Like the first 45 minutes of that second leg was just, it was almost Joke. perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sitting there watching it. I actually rang my dad and was like, are, are you watching this? Like this is unbelievable football. <laughs> yeah. So... I mean, yeah, I mean, outrageous. The levels that they're reaching. Talk about hunger earlier. I think that that for me, I think the Cancelo leaving is is the defining moment for me because I think what that showed was he, he was gone like, mm. like that. For whatever reason, things might have been going on, whatever. But he was still generally considered one of the best fullbacks in the world, right? And he goes and you play Rico Lewis kind of instead. And, and getting to the formation was obviously impressive, but it's it's what Pep can always do. But I think when we talk about hunger and that, you cannot go beneath 97% full hunger, if you know what I mean. 96 right? is too far. Yeah, exactly. And I think he was saying this about, I think he said the phrase like, we're a happy flower team. Yeah, that's what he said. Yeah, and he needed to do change that. And that comes from maybe Sterling and Jesus a little bit, but it obviously didn't have the effect that he wanted it to. But getting rid of Cancelo, that that doesn't make sense for a lot of people. And But it, I think the next day when he walks into training... He doesn't even say a word, does he? No. And you've seen that with Fergie in the past as well. He's kind of made those. Yeah, you've got to be ruthless. And I think that's when you are the best, the only thing you could do to take away, to sort of reinvigorate that hunger is the possibility of you losing it. Mm. And I think that was a really, really strong uh, defining moment for Man City. Just while we're talking about Jack Grealish, I think crucially, did Almiron go on that run because of what Jack Grealish said? Probably. Probably. Yeah, maybe. I think people underestimate the amount of care professionals have about their fellow pros view of them right because i for me if you have some random instagram or twitter account telling you you're rubbish it's one thing sure. if it's someone that you're coming up against that's in the same profession mm. you're going to it's going to get under your skin for sure and he will have had his teammates you know alerting him to it and maybe you know you should just be able to perform at your top level but you need a little bit of a kickstart sometimes I agree. You know, the guy's made it to Newcastle United. He's no mug. Yeah, that said, I'm amazed at how well it's done. I, mean, yeah, I can't believe shit. it. But again, it shows, this is the great thing about football is the sort of ebb and flow of, of confidence and so many different factors that can make a team great or average or, you know, everything in between. What's your number one defining moment of the season? As I said, and I've been consistent on this one, there is, for me, there's nothing bigger than that than that Antonio Conte press conference. If he keeps his mouth shut, Gets on with his job, Spurs could quite easily have found a way to top four at the at the very worst top six. What do you think? I think I can understand you having that view. Although I would argue that Antonio Conte is such a combustible character that it probably would have come at some point anyway. I think yeah. if I look at the overall season and the title race, I'm not suggesting Arsenal would have lasted the course, but I do genuinely think that Saka penalty miss put the final nail in the coffin of their belief that they could carry on. You know, because there was still a fair while to go in the season at that point. They would have had a very, very commanding lead mm. and probably would have gone on to win that game and who knows where it might have ended up. Do you know what? I think you're right. In terms of like on the... I mean, because Tottenham essentially become become irrelevant because they weren't in that title race. And, and you're right. Because that Southampton... I don't think that Southampton game happens if they don't draw the one before. Probably not. The wobble was there, wasn't it? It was there for all to see. Right. Absolute belter of a podcast. I'm sure we've missed loads of defining moments, so feel free to let me know them. Uh, if you've enjoyed this, you're still listening, do me a favour. Hit the follow button on Spotify, and of course you can watch us on Spotify if, if you want to, uh, but wherever you get your podcast, uh, make sure you follow and make sure you give us a five-star rating. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. We're going to do another one in a second. We're going to have a wee, and then we're well, not together. <laughs> I'm going to go for a wee, and then we're going to do that podcast. So just think about me weeing for the rest of your week. Thanks a lot. <laughs>